Hello, you're listening to the A to Z at David Bowie with me, Mark Riley, and me, Rob Hughes. Now, if we say the A to Z of David Bowie and you're eagerly looking for a definitive and ruthless journalistic guide to David's life which leaves no stone unturned, then be prepared for disappointment. If, however, you're looking for a journey through David's life hoping to find out something you didn't know or be reminded of something you did know whilst having the odd wry smile along the way... Then, then this is for you. There'll be laughter. There'll be tears. Hopefully no lawsuits. And at the end, you'll have been part of a podcast series looking at the life of the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. There could well be 26 episodes. Or more. Or less. We, we just, just don't, don't care. Or no. So let's just see where it all takes us. OK, Bob, what we're looking at first? We're looking at A. Ashes to Ashes video. Ashes to Ashes. Now, we're not looking at the single, which was obviously a huge, huge single for David Bowie, but we are looking at the video, which was mind-blowing at the time, wasn't it, Bob? It was. So, it's shot in May of 1980 on uh, Beachy Head and Rye. At the time, I don't think it's the most expensive video ever made now, but at the time it certainly was. The budget was 250000 Shot by David Mallett, who also worked with Peter Gabriel and Def Leppard and Rush and Queen, a hugely respected figure. Yeah, so if you're not familiar with it, it's lots of different effects going on. There's a sort of black sky, pink sea. Bowie has this fantastic clown costume on, doesn't he? And he's walking along the beach, being harangued by uh, his mother, not his real mum, Peggy, but like you know, a mother figure. There was there was thought at the time that it was his mum, wasn't mm, there? So that's, yeah. That was the, the, the rumour, but it most certainly wasn't. It was an actress. And also he's being followed by a group of young people in robes, one of whom, famously, is Steve Strange, R.I.P. Yeah, and behind them, of course, a bulldozer. Yeah, running up behind them. Partially it was influenced by H.R. Uh, Geiger, of course, who famously designed uh, the alien figures. That's right, yeah. And uh, musically, according to Bowie at least, and he should know, influenced by the song Inchworm, sung by Danny Kaye in the 1952 film Hans Christian Andersen. I had a look at this the other day, wow. and it is so sweet. I don't know if you know of this. Do you know that song? I don't know it, no. You will do. It's two and two are four, four and four are All right, okay. It's just a really sweet yeah, scene yeah. with Danny Kaye, and there's this little kid looking into a, a bush, and yeah. uh, and and he's just like looking at this little worm, and Danny Kaye goes over and and starts singing this, and there's some kids singing it in the school behind them. He's really sweet, but that yeah, I mean Bowie said that he put a lot of that kind of stuff, and going back to Lionel Bart and all mm. those things, uh, those things are all like secreted in Bowie's work right throughout his career. It's yeah. amazing, really, but it's it's very sweet. It is okay. So and also the weirdness of the video is just heightened by that fantastic treated piano that Roy Bittan plays on the record, which takes it to a whole other level. Absolutely brilliant. And obviously the, the clown image, it took over the LP cover too, you know, and it takes him back to that Perrault in uh, Turquoise, doesn't it? Which was a film he did in 1967 with Lindsay Kemp. Mm. It, Lindsay Kemp being the director and again uh, inspired Bowie to do mime and all that kind of stuff. There's a great story about the video, uh, and I have to be careful here. In fact, we've got technology, we're all right, but uh, David Bowie is filming the video with David Mallett on the beach and all of the extras and all of the people in the crew. They're just about to do a, a scene of it. And this old guy ambles onto the beach and he's picking up driftwood. And everybody stops and this guy's not bothered, he don't care. He's just picking up bits of driftwood, putting it under his arm. And uh, David Mallet just looks at him and said, excuse me, do you know who that is? And the guy turns to him, this old fellow, and says, of uh, course I do, it's a cat in a clown suit. <laughs> so I wouldn't imagine at which point everybody started laughing. The guy eventually goes, but Bowie said that was a pivotal moment in his life, which is so cool. He just says, uh, it was at that point I just thought to myself, actually, yes, 
I'm running away with myself here. I am just a ah. in a clown suit. Wow. Uh, so, uh, but he was, he was David Bowie in a clown suit. Yeah. If I was picking up Driftwood, it would have been a different story. Absolutely. We've already mentioned the fact that David Mallet would work with David Bowie in the future, but he'd already worked with him on the uh, Boys Keep Swinging video in 1979. But on a New Year's Eve Kenny Everett special, David Bowie was to be a guest. Now, it's a famous story directed by David Mallet, and they filmed in various sections. Obviously, they didn't do it all in one day. It was a big old unit. Mm. In the schedule... Like, at one point, they invited Gary Newman in, and obviously Kenny Everett wanted him there in the first place, and he recorded a tune for the eventual broadcast on New Year's Eve. So David Mallet had worked with Bowie already on the video for Boys Keep Swinging in 1979. Go forward to New Year's Eve and the Kenny Everett TV special. A big event, wasn't it? You yeah. know, it's kind of like, I mean, it's almost like the Morecambe and Wise for the next generation, really. It it's something that you could really, really look forward to. Yeah, so it's directed by Mallet, and they filmed Gary Newman for it. At the time, Mallet says, to him and look, a couple of weeks' time, Bowie's coming in. Would you like to come and see him do Space Oddity? There is no kind of secret in the fact that Gary Newman was a huge David Bowie fan and was seen to be one of his icons, you know, and somebody mm-hmm. that he'd obviously borrowed from to some extent, wasn't it? Yeah. And so you wouldn't turn that down, would you? No. Two weeks later, Gary Newman goes to the studio and who's there, but as expected... Well, Bob Geldof, perhaps not expected. Yeah. He just sat along for the ride. But David Bowie. Mm, and Bowie obviously gets wind of Newman being there. So what does he do? He, says, he goes up to Mallet, has a quiet word in his ear, or maybe not so quiet, and says, look, I don't want him here. Can you get shut of him? It transpires that Bowie did have a problem with the clonish kind of uh, element of Gary Newman, for want of a better phrase. And I like Gary Newman, and he is a great fella. Yeah, same uh, but David Mallet, bit embarrassing, really. At that point in time, he has to go over to Gary Newman and say, can I have a word, mate? I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to ask you to leave, mm. which is already bad enough. And then, uh, like, when the actual programme gets transmitted on New Year's Eve, a month later or whatever... Gary Newman's recording doesn't even make it to the final programme. No. So, obviously, David Mallet doesn't want to upset David Bowie, mm. and so you'd have to bend over and say, all right, yeah, that's in the bin, and but poor old Gary Newman didn't get anything out of it, didn't even get to meet David Bowie. And the slight irony is, of course, if you've got the Ashes to Ashes video, you've got Steve Strange in that, who himself is a new romantic, who obviously was hugely inspired by David Bowie, but was in the Ashes to Ashes video as well. So, yeah. yeah Pick the worms out of that. Go figure. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Okay, so staying with the letter A, Robert, where are we going now? Well, we're going to America, Mark. Specifically, the first two trips that Bowie took. First as a promo trip, and then the first tour as Ziggy. Right, it's well documented for all of the artists who came, really, through the 60s. They were all mad on the American acts, weren't they? So Elvis was big up there, Little Richard. You look at the Beatles and the Stones, and it's it's all John Lee Hooker and all those guys as well. Like by the time that they actually got to America in 1971, the 23rd of January, uh, he flew to Washington. He was mad on the Velvet Underground. He was. That was the thing that was really floating his boat, wasn't it? And he was met by Mercury Records bigwig, Ron Oberman, which sounds like a name off Spinal Tap, but isn't. And he was detained, this is great, as well as sign of things to come, he was detained by officials for 45 minutes because of his clobber. Wow. Okay. So this is, of course, a promo tour for the man who sold the world. Yep. Moved on to New York fairly quickly. Goes to watch Tim Hardin. But, you know, the goal is let's meet the Velvet Underground. Finds out they're playing at the Electric Circus in Manhattan. And then comes one of the strangest, well, non-meetings 
in Bowie's early career. It's a brilliant story, yeah. So he famously goes to see him, the Velvet Underground. He absolutely loves it. He waits for Lou Reed to come out of the stage door, and when he does, then Bowie sets about telling him how great his band are and how fabulous the show was, and then eventually, after all this gassing and probably just hugely, hugely excited, he was told that it wasn't actually Lou Reed. He'd left, like, a couple of months earlier, and it was Doug Yule who had just moved up from being the guitarist and occasional singer in the Velvet Underground to taking the front microphone, hadn't he? Yeah. Uh, and he probably felt a bit of a plonker at that yeah, point in time. Did but having said that, it was understandable as well, pre-internet days. And Doug Yule, if you look at pictures from that time with sort of the, the curly af- hair. afro hair... yeah. Striking resemblance to uh, Lou Reed, no doubt about it. It's understandable, yeah. And the tour moves on, and it is eventful. And we just mentioned the fact that, you know, he's wearing more outlandish gear as the time goes on. Yeah. But in Houston, he got called a fag. Yeah. And he had a gun pulled on him. So he moves out to LA, West Coast, think perhaps a more receptive audience. But no, he's refused entry into a restaurant because of his dress, which may be understandable. His famous Mr. Fish dress, of course. Yeah, but they, they call him a transvestite yeah. and don't let him in. But he meets Rodney Bingham, a mayor of Sunset Strip. Who? Well, so Rodney Bingham, a tastemaker, and then obviously Rodney's English disco that he launched as a, as a sort of American response to English glam, really, in the early 70s. But he was the DJ at Rodney on the Rock, who was very, very influential at that point. Got to know Bowie, travelled with him, uh, and he is the subject of an amazing documentary called Mayor of Sunset Strip, mm. which details his career. And is he's kind of like the Z-Lig of, uh, of West Coast rock, isn't he? He's kind of been everywhere. We'll be looking at him more closely further yeah. on in the podcast, won't we? He also, uh, on this tour, picks up a, a copy of the Stooges album, which gives him an idea. Well, this is mentioned, you know, I mean, mm. you don't have, it's not a great leap of faith to go from Iggy to Ziggy. No, of course And not. the Ziggy myth is all over the place. I mean, you, you put Hendrix and uh, Vince Taylor and loads of different people yeah. into the mix for the component parts for Ziggy, uh, but we'll get to that a little bit later on. And also Gene Vincent, too. And Bowie gets to meet Gene Vincent in LA, goes into recording studio, is there... And he's recording the first version of Hang On To Yourself. It, has this ever been released? Has anybody got a copy of this? Yeah, I don't know. I've never heard it. Out. Yeah, a pretty eventful first yeah. trip. So we're moving on now to the 22nd of September 1972, uh, the debut show in America, Cleveland, Ohio. But, of course, the big centre is New York. So five days later, he's in New York. He's expecting a lot of uh, pizzazz and a lot of promotion and the rest of it. Uh, meets Annette Peacock, mm. who was sort of instrumental in introducing him eventually to Mike Garson. Well, she was asked, wasn't she, she would play mm. synthesizers for Bowie. She said, no, but I know this guy. He's quite handy, Mike Garson. He's a piano teacher. Give him a bell. And they did. But, uh, yeah, apparently it was Mick Ronson who gave Mike Garson the sheet music to Changes. Yeah. And after playing a couple of bars, Ronson was like, you're in. Well, it was a daddle for Garson, wasn't it? Let's that was a very good impersonation of Mick Ronson. Yeah, it was. You're in. Yeah. I don't think that really worked. Apologies. But yeah, 19th of September, again an important, meets the New York Dolls at the Mercer Art Centre mm. and David Johansson and also his girlfriend, Sarinda Fox. Yeah, uh, but also on... becomes Bowie's lover. Oh, so, of sorry, sorry, David Johansson. I'm sure he wasn't that. Well, might have been bothered. And he goes, goes, goes <laughs> on to Cle- Well, look, I David got a Johansson. Bob. I got a minute, Bob. <laughs> well, he was a fly by night character, let's be honest. Oh, back to Cleveland then. He's at the uh, sellout, 3,200 capacity in Cleveland. The tour is a success. Yeah, but I mean, do you know, this is just bizarre. I mean, I, call me old fashioned, but the support act on that particular night was Lindisfarne. I mean, who put that bill together? Whoa. Um, You know, a good band and all that, but not really two peas in a pod. Not really, not at all. So the tour's a success. Two weeks into it, Bowie and Ronson start working on uh, Transformer with Lou Reed. Now, this is amazing because, I mean, talk about lack of concentration. They're trying to crack America. (laughs) But Bowie's like, uh, 
Hang on a minute, guys. I've just got to go to New York to, to work on somebody else's record. I mean, these days he wouldn't be allowed. It would, no. would all be set out ahead of you for the next two years. And if you were to say, I'm going to dib off for a bit and help me mate out. No, you're not, mate. Get on the road. And so, I mean, Transformer was a pivotal album, just one of the great albums. Changed Lou Reed's life for the better, you'd have to say, because it certainly put money in his pocket, which he definitely needed in that time. And two weeks later, and a few shows in between, he then starts working on Raw Power for Again the Stooges. Oh, It's just a force of nature. Yeah. OK. There's a great story while all this is going on about uh, Mick Ronson. He's staying in the Beverly Hills Hotel, isn't he, in L.A., and he gets really badly sunburnt. Goes for a little swim in the swimming pool. What could go wrong? All the chlorine has an effect, a devastating effect on his hair, his wonderful blonde-dyed hair, when it goes green. I remember seeing Ronson with green hair and I was thinking to myself, Mick, 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 what are you doing? You, you look amazing. This is great. I know uh, Bowie's got the like flaming red hair and all that, but uh, green, it's, you're going down Molly Sugden territory. Oh. Now, we're talking of a certain age here, but Molly Sugden was uh, big in the 70s. Are you being served? P- things like that. Yeah. But it didn't work for him. But So at least now, I mean, it is just through doing research, I didn't know this, uh, that it actually happened because of the chlorine in the pool. Yeah. So Mick, we'll let you off on this particular occasion. At least he did presage punk, though, in his way. You know? Well, absolutely. Tony uh, DeFries, the manager, he, I love this again, always thinking about the book. Mm. He came up with the idea of a David Bowie doll. Oh, it didn't happen. I wish it had happened. Yeah, it didn't Imagine happen. the collectability. Around this time as well, so Bowie's really taking off, there is a war of words between Bowie and his old mucker, Mark Bolan. Or maybe it's, is it one-sided? This is a thing, because Bolan calls him a one-hit wonder, doesn't he? Yeah, which obviously he would, he would rue the day. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think it was more more bowling, yeah. kind of kicking off because obviously he was already the star, and and there'd been that rivalry, and so Bowie was coming up behind him most certainly, mm. and as we know overtook him uh, for most people's kind of opinion Absolutely. anyway so we get to early December last show of the tour is at the Tower Theatre in Philadelphia, and of course it's on this tour that most of Aladdin Sane was written. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. So, continuing with the letter A, and yeah, every now and then, my favourite tune of all time. If you love music, you will know what I'm on about, really. I don't change with the wind, but, I mean, you just hear a song and you think, actually, yeah, that's my favourite song of all time. And then you're a little bit further down the line, oh, actually, well, and you don't need to do this, do you? I mean, I'm like a child. You don't have to compartmentalise everything and make everything one, two, three and four. But all the young dudes, you know, and I always say it was the greatest gift from one artist to another, like ever. So Motley Hoople, uh, they started off as Silence, and eventually the same lineup was early Motley Hoople, but with Stan Tippins on vocals, who ended up being their road manager. Yeah, trusty road manager. So Guy Stevens, who was in-house producer at Ireland, uh, went on to produce The Clash and everybody else, wasn't really convinced that Stan was the man for the job. I don't think Stan complained that much, to be honest. Well, I, I've met Stan, and he's still, he still like, he was working with Motley Hooper when I went to see the, the Reformation and mm. when they, they did the comeback gigs and all that kind of stuff. And he, you'd have to say that Ian Hunter was the right choice, but it was pretty brutal. It was a bit. I mean, they advertised in the paper, look, we need a new singer, while Stan was still there. Yeah. You know? And, uh, and so going from the front man to being the, the tour manager, but he took it on the chin and it stood him in good stead. So, so you could say about Guy Stevens that he sort of steered Motley Hooper, certainly, and as well as getting Ian Hunter in. He came up with a name... 
He was in prison at the time for a drug offence, wasn't he? He was, And yeah. he was reading a book by Willard uh, Manners called Mott the Hoople and just thought, there's a name for a band, we should use it. Yeah, and so the band, they, they get on a roll, you know. I mean, uh, some mates of mine used to go and see them all the time and, you know, obviously I'm of the age where I know Mott the Hoople as a glam band, but before mm. that they were a real kind of hard rocking, loads of fights at the gigs and all those kind of things, real kind of proper student band, you know. But debut self-titled album, 1969, Mad Shadows, 1970, Wildlife, 1971, Brain Capers, 1971. Great records, mm. you know, not as a complete entity, but lots of great stuff on there. Yeah. But they were going to pack it in at this point, weren't they? Well, you know, three albums down the line, four albums down the line, they couldn't get a break. Mm. Nobody was buying the records. As I say, this really core following, including people like Mick Jones, later of The Clash, who was obsessed. He used to travel. He used to like hop trains, yeah. didn't he? And, and all that kind of stuff, going to see them all over the country. So they made the decision, let's just call it a day, lads. We've given it a go. Let's split. And so... Over in Watts says, Look, obviously looking for the next avenue for him. Look, do you need a bass player for your yeah. band? He just tipped Bowie, didn't he? I mean, let's face it, he had Trevor Boulder, a brilliant bass player, so he didn't need Pete yeah. Watts, and um, Bowie was no idiot. So he no. just recognized the fact and said, Oh, I can't help you out on that point, mate, but maybe we can uh, set about making you popular. So this again is oh. great, and it's just the kind of spirit of Davy Bowie, but he offers him Suffragette City. What did they do, Bob? They turned it down. <laughs> oh, it's now you'd think a lot of people just say, Right, I'm out the door. If you don't like these songs, fine. I'll take them somewhere else. What's he do? No, Bowie says, look, I've got something else. It's a great story because he goes into an office on Regent Street, I think it was, uh, with an acoustic guitar with Ian Hunter and just sits down and starts working on a tune in front of Ian Hunter. And before long, he's got the chord structure and the idea and the words most of for all the young dudes. Now, yeah, Ian Hunter apparently sat there going, bingo. I, I could, I know this is a hit record, yeah. and the story is also that Bowie at the end of it was thinking, mm. Mm, "What have I done now?" Well, to kind of put it in a sort of time uh, context here, this was still before Starman was a hit. Yep. So Starman was out, but it was going laboriously making its way up the charts, uh, and so there was no guarantee that Bowie was ever going to have another hit. So he gives Mark the Hoople this, which completely revives their career, puts them into a different bracket, like it or, or not. Mm. You know, they were a glam band all of a sudden. Yeah, a definite game of two halves. Mm. Mark the Hooper, wasn't it? So it, that reached number three in the charts and turned, yeah, just uh, a different band, but a chart band. And the platform boots came out. They really, really went for it, particularly yeah. the aforementioned Pete Watts, over M Watts, who used to be on top of the pops with the thigh-length white leather boots, and he used to spray his hair silver as well, didn't he? So he really went for it. Yeah. Well, Bowie sticks around, even produces yeah. the album for them, all the young dudes. Yeah. And they're a big band that was, you know, top 30 album in the UK all of a sudden. And there is a further connection, of course, later on when Mick Ronson joins Motley Hoople. For a very short period of time, a little bit contentious, a lot of kind of frayed nerves going on, really at the tail end of Mott, wasn't it? And then he goes off and collaborates for a long time with uh, Ian Hunter himself. Yeah, the story being that, uh, so Mick Ronson joins Motley Hoople. He's already got his own solo career going alongside, but he was never really that comfortable with it. And so he joins Motley Hoople, but he's still being treated like a star by Main Man, the management mm. company, and the rest of Mot the Hoople's, so the story goes, were a little bit miffed about this and so tensions. I had tickets to see, I was so livid, I had tickets to see Mot the Hoople with Mick Ronson at the Palace Theatre in Manchester. Oh. I, were, I was on the third row or something, I just could not wait. And then it got cancelled because he, I think it was because Ian Hunter was ill. Yeah. Now, whether that was uh, ill in inverted mm. commas or whether he was ill, I don't know. Uh, but I, I was gutted, still am. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. 
So A is also for Arnold Corns, which is a strange little episode in Bowie's career, isn't it? Slightly, one of the slightly confusing episodes out there. When you get into Bowie at a certain point, wherever it might have been in your life, you know, then you'll just see different things flying around and thinking, what's that about? When was that recorded? Who's that singing? Who's playing on Mm. it? You know, and and there is a book called uh, Any Day Now by Kevin Can, which for this era will explain everything, really. Um, But yeah, formed by Bowie in 1971, the name inspired by Pink Floyd's Arnold Lane. Yeah, so formed at Dulwich College. Bowie sort of as the mentor of this band, uh, Mark Carl Pritchard was mooted as lead singer, but in the end he gave it to a 19-year-old designer called Freddie Beretti, who was also known as Rudy Valentino. There was a problem here, wasn't there, mate? He wasn't a very good singer at all. That's being polite, yeah. It was a fabricated band and, you know, they had a bogus frontman. That's Mm. how it transpired. So Bowie had these ideas. You know, let's face it, I mean, he's yet to start trying to not Svengali, but sprinkle fairy dust over Motley Hoople and Lou Reed and Iggy Pop's career. Yeah. But he's already thinking, right, how can I help these guys? You know, I I might be an artist, Mm. but I'm going to try and manufacture a band and use this good-looking young guy as a singer and I will make loads of money as well. And they will... And everybody will be happy, but he couldn't sing. No, he couldn't sing. But you have to say, Bowie obviously saw it as a bit of a dry run for Ziggy. So he had the idea in his head, perhaps not fully formulated, because the band on the Honor Corps record is, of course, the Spiders from Mars. It's With Bowie's Mark band. Carr Pritchard, yeah. Mm. So, I mean, that's it. And then, so if you hear it, like I say, if you hear it, and the, when I was trying to find out when I first heard it, what it was about, you're mm. thinking, it's this guy, Freddie Barretti, sounds like Bowie. But Freddie Barretti's buried so low in the mix that he's really, all you can probably hear is Bowie. Yeah, we shouldn't forget either. Freddie Brett, he wasn't completely useless because he came in handy later on because he did all the costumes for the uh, Ziggy Tour. That's what he was, yeah. I mean, you can't be good at everything, can you? You know, and he died in his sleep uh, in Paris in 2001. But the first release was Moon Age Daydream Mm. and Hang On To Yourself. That was a flop. And so then Looking For A Friend and Man In The Middle was shelved and and never made it out until years later. So it was a short-lived thing altogether, wasn't it? Yep. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. A is for A the Cherry. Now, at this point in time, we do need to say that throughout the course of this series, we are going to be looking at people who were, you know, they were important to Bowie's career, but maybe not household names. And you would say that of Ava Cherry. For the Bowie spots out there, they know who she was. And is indeed. Ava Cherry, also known as the Black Barbarella, grew mm. up in Chicago. She was originally a friend of Angie Bowie's. Yeah. That's, that's how right. he met her. So Bowie was living in an apartment uh, which he'd rented off Diana Rigg, the actress. Yeah. With Angie and his son, uh, Zoe. So uh, Ava Cherry met David Bowie while he was recording uh, pinups at the Chateau de Reville in yeah, uh, France. Absolutely. She was really striking looking. I mean, and she is all over. You can see her on the Cracked Actor documentary, yeah. can't you? More of which later. But he told her that he would turn into a star. So he's at it again. The next Josephine Baker, he said. So he's got a, a contract for her with Main Man yeah. alongside all of Motley Hoople and all the other people that we mentioned before. Uh, but her first job was as Bowie's backing singer. That's right. And then she forms a band, The Astronauts, as a bit of a vehicle for her, wasn't it? Alongside Bowie's mate, Jeff McCormick. Mac, who will be a recurring figure in this series. Also, also known as Warren Peace, Warren wasn't Peace. he? Yeah, so uh, they made an album together, which was called People From Bad Homes. There's lots of uh, the, yeah. the kernels of later Bowie tunes in there, like Fame is in there. Yeah, and Fashion. You know. and the, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a Laser as well, which is a later sort of turned into Scream Like a Baby from Scary Monsters. Yeah. Uh, I'm Divine, which is an early sort of prototype version of Somebody Up There Likes Me. Which is one of the greatest Bowie tunes as well, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, yeah, so he's looking to his, his, his next move, isn't he? You know, Bowie. So the next time we hear of Ava Cherry, she is one of 
of the backing vocalists on Young Americans. Uh, one of three, in fact, alongside Robin Clark, who's married to uh, Carlos Alomar, the guitar player on that album, who'd gone to school with the, the third backing singer, Luther Vandross. Yeah, and of course, uh, so Luther Vandross goes on to be a huge, huge star. Mm. I'm very grateful to David Bowie, I'm sure. And uh, the story goes that Ava Cherry and Bowie became lovers. Yes. That was uh, that's set in stone, I think, really. And yeah, she's all over the uh, the brilliant documentary Cracked Actor, and she's doing all those really complicated parts with Robin and uh, Luther Vandross. And they are really complex parts as well. They're really they're not just basic backing singer soul stuff. He's got it all in his mind. No, you do that there. You do that there. That's a fraction later than that. And they're all a bit like, wow, okay. And uh, and and that is Young Americans, which is another story. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. A is also for one of Bowie's prime influences, Anthony Newley, the actor and singer. Well, again, you know, you talk about the confusion when you get into David Bowie, and so I got into him when he was doing Starman and Ziggy and all that, and then you start to read about him and they talk about Anthony Newley, and I knew who Anthony Newley was, you know, and you're thinking, really? Yeah. What? But then, of course, yes, you go back in his career and there's no doubt about it. So born the 24th of September 1931, died the 14th of April 1991, born in Hackney, proper Cockney. Yeah, first major film role was uh, The Adventures of Dusty Bates in 1947, but the really big break a year later when he plays the Artful Dodger in uh, David Lean's version of Oliver Twist. Yeah, 1948. And so, I mean, there is absolutely no doubt he was the biggest influence on Bowie's debut self-titled mm. album, wasn't he? And it was that Cockney thing again, which which Bowie really kind of exaggerated, didn't he? Oh, yeah, completely. He kind of mimics... I mean, Bowie, you know, he, to his credit, he always admitted that Anthony... He was obsessed with Newley for, for a long time, wasn't he? He was. I mean, he was particularly the TV series that he did, uh, which was a strange world of Gurney Slade, which was in the mm. 1960s. And Bowie said of it, it was quite the most bizarre piece of work I'd seen on TV. But it was, it was out there, mm. you know, and so that was uh, Bowie's sense of adventure which comes through. Uh, but it, it stuck out like a sore thumb when it came out. Yeah, it was a real surreal piece of work. Completely. Yeah, still yeah. Uh, feels like timeless. Uh, of course, a year after he'd seen that, he also saw uh, Anthony Newley as a white-faced clown in Stop the World and Want to Get Off. So again, the theatrics come in here. It's not just the appearance of the singing, it's the whole look of the thing. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, you forget, you look at Bowie, the icon and everything. He was a fan as well, you know, of all different people. I saw a great picture of him uh, with uh, Keith Richards recently, mm. and he looked so pleased to be stood with Keith Richards. Oh, yes. I you know. know, and you do forget that, don't you? I was lucky enough to meet Bowie a few times, and you just say, oh, but he's been like that when he's met other people in the past. One great thing is that it was years later that Anthony Newley wrote a letter of thanks to David Bowie, but he never got a reply, did he? Oh, he didn't. He, well, <laughs> he said later he must have been busy. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, he would be busy, and the thing is, I just think if you sit that back, David Bowie sat there in his office, in his mansion, opening all his own mail, mm. probably not. It would take him it would take him seven days a week to do, wouldn't it? So he yeah. probably did just slip the net. But they did, never did actually meet, although there is a story, apparently they locked eyes, didn't they, across uh, a, a Parisian restaurant once, but didn't do anything else about it. The funny thing is, if you can just put yourselves in their situation, they probably think, I'm not going over first. No. You know, oh no, I'm not going over there. What if you what if you blanks me? No, to tell you, yeah, you, yeah fair enough. You just look at each other longingly uh, uh, across the candles. I would have just kind of wandered past, you know, sort of insouciantly, perhaps on the way to the buffet uh, trolley or something, just to see if he even looked up. Well, you didn't. No, I've never met him. Have you? you never met David Bowie? You spoke to him. I've spoken to him. Yes, right, uh, okay. I interviewed him via email, which doesn't count, but it counts in my book. It so most certainly go. does, mate. Yeah. Uh, okay. We sh we should also mention when it comes to Anthony Newley's uh, influence that uh, David Bowie decided in the early months of 1968 to start work on what he called a, a playlet called Ernie Johnson of all things. I love it, it's called a rock opera for film or TV i.e. not fussy, <laughs> who will ever have it you know, and, and that was based on Gurney Slade wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, so the influence 
influences there right throughout the sort of mid to late 60s, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. A is also for Adrian Ballou. An amazing guitarist, an amazing technician, born Robert Stephen Ballou, 1949, Covington, Kentucky. Or initially he was a drummer in his uh, high school military band, and then he was in a high school covers band called the Denims. Now, the weird thing is, you know, I mean, something happens now, okay, in his life, and if it hadn't have happened, he might have stayed a drummer and been a mediocre drummer Mm. all of his life. He might have even been a good drummer, but he probably wouldn't have been a virtuoso. So, bedridden with mononucleosis, which is a virus, I know I'm a doctor, he started listening to Jimi Hendrix, he drops the drums and starts playing guitar. And the great thing about it, he starts replicating all these sort of complex records that he's listening to, and he can do them. He teaches himself how to do just by playing along. The records that he's listening to have got all kinds of fairy dust and gizmos and gadgets on them. He hasn't got any of them, but he replicates the records just by learning them and just being a brilliant guitarist eventually. Yeah, so he joins a covers band in 1977 called Sweetheart. Now they've got a residency at a place called Fanny's in Nashville. Frank Zappa drops in one night, impressed by what he hears. And sees. How about a year later, Zappa's on the phone, look, I want you to record with me, he says. He does an audition for him, doesn't he, and fails it, which is, uh, again, you know, if you, even when you hear him with Zappa, he's just, and as we know Frank Zappa was a huge taskmaster, a really mm. hard guy to work for, but he failed the first audition. Now, the second one is face-to-face with Zappa. Imagine how terrifying that must have been. He was so exacting, wasn't he, as you mentioned, a taskmaster and the rest of it, but he passes it. Yeah, well, I mean, it was Adrian Ballou's idea. I think he said, look, you know, I can't work with all these people around me. I'm too freaked out. Just let me and you get in a room and I'll show you what I can do. And he did, and, well, there you go. And then, so, 1978, Eno recommends uh, Adrian Ballou to David Bowie Mm. and he offered him a part on the stage tour. So he nicks, you know, I mean, there are various parts of David Bowie's career where he nicks musicians and, uh, and ideas. You know, yeah. we know a little bit of that goes on. Uh, he was musical director of the uh, Sound and Vision tour, wasn't yeah, he, in 1990? Okay. So he plays on Lodger. The story goes, in fact, you know, whoa, going back maybe 15 years now, I interviewed Adrian Ballou about this, about being called in by Eno and Bowie. And he said, he didn't know what he was doing, but we put him in the studio and said, look, plug in, just see what you can do. And they played him Heroes. So they're playing like that title track and all these kind of really complex Robert Fripp parts. And Ballou does them. Without stopping. And Bowie and Eno, he said he looked out through the glass into the control room and he said they were both just killing themselves laughing because they couldn't believe that he could do this stuff on the first take. And he could do them brilliantly, technically and phrasing-wise. He was just immaculate. The thing is that you talk about Robert Fripp. I mean, Robert Fripp did the same thing for Heroes, didn't he? Yeah. Famously. And so I don't know whether Robert Fripp wasn't available or they were just, you know, had other ideas, but they put him in exactly the same situation. Listen to Heroes, that's what Fripp did. What, what can you do? And he did a great job. He didn't know the key or the, the tempos of yeah. the tunes or anything. He just went in and waded through, didn't he? Yeah, he did it brilliantly. Of course, he went on to work with Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club and King Crimson and the rest of it. But there is an interesting story that he tells about meeting Bowie for the first time. Yeah, these are Baloo's words, actually. He said there was a part of the show where Frank Zappa would play an extended guitar solo... And some of his band members would leave the stage, including me. As I was leaving, I looked over the soundboard and saw Bowie and Iggy Pop. I walked over, shook his hand, and I said, I love what you do. And he said, great, how would you like to be in my band? And now you can only guess as to how the uh, fractious and bad-tempered Frank Zappa reacted to this. Maybe he was very generous, I don't know. Well, and, uh, I don't think he was generous, was he? He didn't like it at all. Did he, he not? He would refer to Bowie sort of um, quite badly. He called him Captain Tom, didn't he? Do you want to play for me or do you want to play for Captain Tom? Oh, did he? Yeah. Right, OK. So, I'll retract that then. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't nice about it <laughs> wasn't at all. wasn't nice at all. He was and, very upset. Uh, and Adrian Ballou does say, one day I'll write a book, and I'll buy it. I'll buy it too. 
The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... A Clockwork Orange, Art Lab and Aladdin Sane.